Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to this Ejo Life, a production of the European Journal of International Law. My name is Sarah Nalen, and I'm an editor-in-chief of the European Journal. With me are Lawrence Helfer, I should say Larry Helfer, as he's popularly known, and Eric Vooten. And they are the authors of an article that is in EGIL issue 31.3, titled Walking Back Human Rights in Europe? Larry, Eric, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great. I would like to know all kinds of things about you, but let's start with that article and with the intriguing title, Walking Back Human Rights in Europe, question mark. So it's a question. Now, the first thing, walking back, I think in British English, the only thing that one can walk back or one uses walking back if one re- wants to return to the place where one comes from and one goes on foot. Um, but in American English, one can actually walk back statements, actions. And it seems to be, or at least that's the question in your article, one can walk back human rights. So how does that work? One day I've got the right to life and the next day I no longer have the right to life. And who is doing this walking back? Yes, that's a great question. And we were thinking, I suppose, about walking back in that American parlance. And uh, the walking back of human rights does seem uh, at first glance to be uh, a strange concept but it's in part built on the fact that the European Court of Human Rights, which is what we're studying, has expanded the interpretation of the Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms in Europe for 50 or 60 years in the course of its many, many thousands of judgments. So it's applied the Living Instrument Doctrine and the European Consensus Inquiry, among other uh, legal doctrines, to find that practices that were once unobjectionable under uh, European human rights law were violations uh, of, of now were violations of the Convention. And it does that by uh, keeping pace with the trends and standards in national, regional and international laws and, and policies. But what we've seen in particularly about the last decade or so is that the court has come under increasing uh, political pressure uh, from national governments, some from in some cases from national courts, including uh, longstanding democracies, uh, signals both by individual governments and by states collectively that the court has moved too far and in particular has done so with respect to disfavored minority groups, uh, criminal suspects, terrorism suspects, um, uh, ethnic and sexual minorities, and so forth. And so the court has faced the question, if we walk forward or expand human rights using interpretive methodologies, what happens when the same sources point toward uh, a retrogression of rights? Do we take those into account or do we say rights can only expand, they can never contract? And that's the question that remains somewhat unanswered, which is why the title of our paper ends in a question mark. And it wasn't your ambition to answer the question? Well, it was our ambition to try as best as we could to answer the question. So as Eric and I explained in the paper, 
uh, trying to answer the question faces an empirical challenge because the court, although it has many times overruled its judgments in a progressive or rights expanding way, it has never thus far overruled its judgments in a way that favors the government. So as a result of that, we actually don't have direct evidence that the court is uh, narrowing rights in Europe. And so Eric and I were thinking about how empirically we could attempt to uh, assess this. And one of the ways we decided to do that was to look at the separate or minority opinions of the 17 member grand chamber of the ECHR, which here's the most important and um, uh, precedential cases uh, in within the Strasbourg human rights system. And we looked in particular to these separate opinions when they alleged that the majority had in fact uh, narrowed or restricted rights, either tacitly or implicitly overruling prior case law or construing prior doctrines in ways that amounted to the same thing as a, as a reduction in rights. And the, the top line finding of our paper is that we see uh, the walking these walking back dissents, as we call them, some of them are, are concurrences or separate opinions, but we label them all walking back dissents as rising in both uh, absolute terms and percentage terms uh, over the last 20 years since the in, uh, institutionalization of the Grand Chamber in 1998. So we look at four, uh, about 800 separate opinions, I think, and we find about a little less than 150 of these uh, walking back to sense, and we see that they're increasing uh, over time in a way that is statistically significant and that we think shows the court is in fact walking back human rights in Europe, even though it's not the majority at least, the court as a whole has not yet said that is what it's doing. But couldn't this just be a matter of um you know, kind of judicial revenge. You didn't get the majority to, to agree with you. So what do you do? You write a separate opinion and you say, they're walking back human rights. My view is the right view. My view is the understanding of where human rights actually are. And they, they are walking back these human rights. How do you methodologically uh, protect yourself against that kind of fallacy? Yeah, so let me say a little bit and then maybe I'll turn it over to Eric for, for his thoughts. So there's... Um, no doubt we we'll, uh, allow for the fact that judges dissent, and this is true not just in the ECHR, but in national constitutional and high courts, dissent for a whole variety of reasons. Their court can have a culture of dissent. Uh, judges can dissent to make a rhetorical point. They can dissent in order to identify uh, or plant the seeds for future cases or suggest a way in which there might be some kind of reform of the system. And so in any individual case, if we were relying on a particular judgment, that would be, we, we, we recognize the fact that judges will have different reasons for this. But there are a number of ways in which we think uh, we can uh, control for some of these other characteristics. So I'll uh, say just a couple and then turn things over to Eric. So first of all, just the, the aggregate number is, is worth noting that even if in a particular case, you might think there are other motivations for what the majority is doing, the fact that we see an overall rise over time that cuts across different articles of the convention, different rights, uh, different controversies, suggests that this is a, a broader phenomenon, not in any one particular uh, issue area or, or problem. So, and, and that it is increasing over time is also relevant. But could it also indicate that the, the atmosphere at the ECHR is souring? 
Yes, that is an alternative hypothesis that we see now more contention uh, across the board. Maybe I'll turn things over to Eric to see what he has to say about the methodological points and, and about this alternative uh, argument that uh, Sarah just put forward. Sure. Um, I'll add two points to this. The first is it's absolutely true that dissenting opinions reflect the subjective perceptions of the judges. Um, and I think there is some evidence that there is some souring on the court and some polarization uh, on the court. But then the question is why? Uh, is it just because the judges don't get along with each other? Or is it because the judges have fundamentally different views of what the court should be doing and what the court is doing? Um, and so, for example, uh, we've also found evidence in other research that the judges on the court themselves have changed, that, that governments, especially right-wing governments in Europe, have increasingly nominated judges that seem to have views that the court should be more restrained in its application of, uh, of, of, uh, of doctrine and should be less expansive in its interpretation of rights. Right? So uh, we think that that reflects something broader about the direction of the court rather than just something internal to the court or some cultural differences among the judges. The second thing I would add is that our paper doesn't stand alone. It uh, fits in with a broader body of literature that uses different kinds of data, different kinds of information to reach similar conclusions. So people like Bashak Sali or Mikael Matsen have looked at things like uh, the occurrence or the application of margin of appreciation doctrine, or looking at uh, findings that the court has become more uh, careful to rule against, especially established democracies like the United Kingdom and France in, in very uh, sensitive cases. Um, I have research with uh, Oyvind Stjansen from Pluricourts in Oslo in the International Studies Quarterly, where we find evidence um, that the court uh, increasingly finds in favor of the government, and especially those governments who have in the various multilateral uh, conferences insisted that the court should be more restrained in its application of, of doctrine. Um, so I think if you read our paper in conjunction with that other body of evidence, both quantitative evidence and more qualitative evidence or interpretive evidence, uh, you, you create a body of evidence that there is something going on with the direction of the court that seems to reverse uh, an earlier expanse, expansionary doctrine that, that seemed to exist. Talking about building on literature, I was struck by the fact, and I say this, of course, as an editor of EGIL, how beautifully this article follows on to an article we published in issue 31.1, namely by S.V. Yildiz, who identifies three types of judges on the European court. The arbitrators, the ones who just want to deal with the case in front of them, the norm interpreters who want to push the boundaries of human rights law, and then the delineators who say, this is it and no further. But you've really added the fourth category, the, the walking backers, uh, the delineators in the, in the, in the more, yeah, or the, perhaps the, the norm entrepreneurs are pushing the boundaries one way and your people are pulling the boundaries back in another direction. So I thought it follows beautifully on from that. I wanted to go back to one point um, I think Larry mentioned earlier about the judges saying, well, or asking themselves the question, should we now... Uh, limit kind of the, 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 the extent of the right because the sources are indicating that. And I, I wanted to know more about this idea of sources. So it's a very 
positivist understanding of, of perhaps kind of customary international law. We need to look at what, what the states are doing and how they are interpreting um, human rights in, in their own countries. Does that fit with the tradition that the European Court has adopted so far with interpreting its own convention? So maybe I'll say a word about that, and, and Eric, you may want to, of course, add something. I think the court, when it first began in uh, the Tyre case in 1976 or 78, I can't recall, and the Handyside case, when the court first began after about 15 years of its existence of hearing cases to uh, face questions of interpretation, it could, Sarah, you're certainly right, have uh, applied uh, more traditional methods of interpretation from the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and it has, of course, turned to the Vienna Convention on a number of, uh, of occasions. It could also have decided, in a sense, we are the interpreters of international human rights law, and as a result, we decide what these rights mean, we give them an autonomous meaning. And those, there's a thread of of a jurisprudence that runs through the court's case law with that as well. But what the court began to do and committed itself to do was in part to define rights by reference to what's, and you're right, it does look a bit like a customary international law state practice analysis. And you will see in many judgments, not all to be sure, um, you will see uh, instances in which the court will actually do a head count of the 47 member states of the Council of Europe and say, Okay, um, we've done some research, or the uh, the uh, registry has helped us and done some research, and we can see that uh, what's going on across Europe uh, reveals the following trends. And I suppose at the most general level of analysis, you can say the court gives less deference or margin of appreciation to governments with respect to issues of proportionality balancing, which in the end are what many hard cases turn on. If there is a common European approach and the respondent state is an outlier with respect to that approach, then the court is more willing to uh, be more aggressive. Conversely, if this is a novel issue or the law is in a transitional stage, the court is more willing to be deferential or at least to hold back until it sees a, a trend changing over time. So the court doesn't, is not, it's worth pointing out, perfectly consistent about this. Uh, there are certainly areas where, uh, with respect to the categorical rights, uh, right to life, uh, torture and cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment, uh, and other similar non-derogable rights where the court is much less interested in what the member states are, how they're implementing a right. But in those areas where, that contain, where the right contains a limitations clause or what uh, sometimes called a clawback clause, there the court is, is using this methodology to try to strike the right balance. And I think the challenge is the court is so committed now to having that methodology in place that it faces a, a conundrum. And we identify in the paper the judges and the commentators who say, no, 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 this is only a one-way street. If you expand rights, then there is reliance on those rights. There are uh, rights holders, the individuals and groups who get to uh, rely on the fact that uh, these rights have now been recognized and you can't go back the other way. Whereas others have said, no, if you're going to rely on this methodology to expand rights, you have to be um, consistent and rely on it when the trends suggest the opposite direction. So far, the court has not given us the kind of clarity about when we might see situations 
in which it's appropriate to do that and when it might not be. Yeah, because I can imagine that it's usually problematic, especially as you indicate that it's particularly groups in society that at present are not, not the most popular who are affected by this. Because one can imagine that one theory of human rights is that those are the people who need human rights most. Yes, yes. And that may very well be why the court will not um, explicitly uh, undertake a, a regression of, of rights. And uh, if it does do that, even implicitly or, or tacitly, it will do that in, in a very limiting way. This goes just to a broader point that we might as well put on the table that Eric and I have thought about uh, separately and, and also when writing together. And that is, um, how do in international institutions do tend to have a set of methodologies and tools they can use to uh, expand their authority, to interpret their authority either broadly or in a teleological way or in, in light of a treaty's object and purpose to, to fill in gaps or to achieve its broader objectives. But we don't have the same kind of methodologies, I think, for what happens when the political, institutional and other forms of support of, of member states wither uh, and a court faces clash or tension between the member states current preferences and its prior uh, approach to resolving issues. How does the court, uh, does should the court, it's a normative question as well as an empirical question, should it dial back? And if so, how should it do that? And we don't, this is a very, an area we don't have uh, a lot of writing on and we don't have a lot of practice on, I think. So that may be your next article together, but I first wanted to ask something about how this one came about. So, Larry, you are the Harry R. Chetwick Senior Professor of Law at Duke Law School, a law professor. Eric, you are the Peter F. Kroc, or Crow Kroc, Professor of Geopolitics and Justice of, in World Affairs at Georgetown. So, the political scientist. Now, in my experience, such interdisciplinary collaboration is either a dream or a disaster, a nightmare. Um, and it works or it doesn't work. And that's why I'm always intrigued when it seems to work. What does it make it work? How do you get two ideas together? Do you go to the pub? Well, at the moment, it's not possible even. But I mean, do you and have a beer and suddenly these amazing ideas come up? Or uh, do you call each other up? I've got this idea. What do you think? Let's do it together. Where, where do these ideas and these collaborations come from? It is true that these uh, kind of collaborations are kind of uh, hit or miss. Uh, and I think they depend a lot on actually getting to know each other to see if there could be a viable co collaboration there. Uh, Larry was organizing a workshop when he was still in Vanderbilt, I believe in 2005, uh, or maybe a little bit later. Um, and that was a workshop which basically just is an exchange of ideas. There were social scientists, law professors there. Uh, he did a similar one uh, back in 2010. So we got to know each other over the years. And I believe that at the second one, we started talking about some ideas, especially ideas to really test whether um, the more expansive uh, rulings of the court had a broader effect on human rights protections in Europe. Uh, and that is an article we wrote and published in international organizations on LGBT rights. Uh, and I believe we started discussing that idea um, at a workshop. I forgot if it was a dinner or just uh, over lunch or coffee in between sessions. Uh, you start brainstorming, you start emailing, you start thinking about data collection, uh, and we really went from there. 
Uh, I think what's nice about this collaboration is that we our skills are really complementary. Uh, we don't over overlap all that much. Larry is clearly the legal expert. I'm clearly more of the methodologist, but we both know enough about each other's subfields to actually work together as well. Uh, so to uh, have different responsibilities, but at the same time be able to comment on each other's work and be able to uh, improve uh, the writing, improve the thinking, uh, discipline each other. So it's, it's been a very enjoyable collaboration. And how does that work? How, how do you get to this beautiful single voice throughout your article? With this article, I can't really say, well, this section has been written by Larry, this piece has been written by Eric. There, there's a, from A to Z, there's this one voice. How do you do that? It's a great question. Um, go ahead, Eric, please. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to credit Larry because he's he's a very uh, he's, he's a very good editor, and he'll he'll uh, he'll get all the Dutchisms out of my English, and uh, he uh, <laughs> he makes sure that we write in one voice. Uh, but I think it's also related to the idea that even though we have very different uh, specific uh, expertise, uh, I know enough about the law to at least sort of understand what Larry is is talking about, and Larry knows enough about social science to also improve my writing. And uh, so th there is uh, there's a nice sort of back and forth on that. Larry, I'm going to send you my pieces of writing because then you can de-dutch some more pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, I agree with, with what Eric's saying. I think it's also another thing about good collaboration is you know, one of the things I absolutely am certain about with Eric is, you know, as an uh, empiricist, a methodologist, I trust what he uh, the, the results he comes up with. And sometimes I will say, well, what if we tweak it this way? What do we tweak it that way? Are you sure? Um, and he does the exact same to me. Um, you know, no, I think you're kind of overclaiming here. Um, maybe we can say it better this way. Um, and so there's no um, pride of, um, I mean, there's pride of authorship, but there, there isn't a kind of, well, that's, that's my claim and you can't touch that part of the paper. I want it to be, and Eric agrees, I'm sure, as accurate and as persuasive as possible. And part of what that means too is also recognizing where there are alternative explanations, not hiding them, but putting them right up front and center. And, and the other thing we do, I think also quite well, is we will often present uh, papers together at different venues and we'll, uh, and sometimes separately, and we'll take feedback that we receive and uh, kind of then consolidate it and say, okay, these people have this other problem. Something we didn't do wasn't right here. Uh, we need to figure out how to report mm. the data a little bit differently. Um, also peer review helps. So the peer review from EGIL was, was very good. Uh, one of the reviews was both substantively on the law and very careful on the, the quantitative analysis, and that helped a lot too. Yeah, I think with all with pieces that are co-authored in such a thorough way, you in a way have a round of peer review or endless peer review with it among yourselves before you even send it. So in, in that sense, it's uh, really quality enhancing. Hey, but the final question, what's next? So this piece is about uh, human rights in Europe and the opening line is human rights in Europe are a perpetual work in progress. What's the next piece? Is it about Europe or are you also going to go to the United States? Because I think human rights there are <laughs> quite a big issue and you may need a different methodology and a different data set. Yeah. But um, there too, it seems to be a perpetual work in progress. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Eric and I are both interested in international courts in general uh, and how they um, build their authority over time, how they exercise it, uh, how it comes under challenge. We're very, we both written separately about issues relating to uh, populism and the backlash against uh, human rights uh, institutions. So we've been, in that sense, those areas been kind of working separately. I could imagine um, there might be a collaboration there in the future where we combine uh, our skills to focus on international institutions more generally. I think the court, the European court has been such a, a fruitful place for us to look because it is both rich in terms of its legal doctrines and its jurisprudence, but also there are enough judgments that you can do the kind of uh, quantitative analysis that uh, Eric excels in. That's not true for many other international courts, although it's becoming more true. So I could also imagine the possibility of looking at a, another court that has more uh, now that there are more judgments, um, that we could say something that where our respective skills could um, be brought to bear. Those are just some ideas. I haven't uh, uh, pinned down Eric with a project yet, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, but I think I think we're indeed both interested in this uh, this changing environment in which international courts, but actually international institutions and international law more generally are now operating in. Um, I think we're. Uh, we have to realize how unusual the 1990s and early 2000s were as an environment in which international law and human rights law could develop. There were incredible liberalizing trends. There was an incredible expansion of uh, the number of countries that were being integrated to this sort of liberal international community, um, as well as an incredible deepening of the, of the kind of legal commitments that, that, that exist at the international level. And we're going through a period in which there is a serious backlash against this, in which some countries might opt out uh, of, of, that, of that system or might challenge it in very fundamental ways. And to me, this is the, the, the question as a social scientist that seems to be, as a social scientist who studies international institution, international law, that is the question of the day. And so that's the question yeah. that I'm interested in. It's also a question that Larry is interested in. And um, so... I'm, I'm, I, I hope there'll be something in the future there. But. Absolutely. And perhaps it's even more important to study it in places where one cannot count the, the human rights decisions because yeah. they're not there. I mean, it's, um, but that, that raises even more methodological questions, of course. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. It was a real pleasure. I would like to thank all those who have been listening to us for joining us as well. And for more on, on the article, for the actual article itself, for more EGIL podcasts, for more EGIL lives, please visit egiltalk.org or egil.org. <laughs>